TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. And I'm Mihir. Happy Diwali, Mihir. Oh, yes. Thank you, Felix. I know. It's been a couple of days, but I hope you celebrated. Oh, it was fantastic. Diwali is a wonderful celebration in Hinduism and for many people around the world. We happen to celebrate it with my sister, who does a wonderful job oh, nice. of putting together a little puja. And it's really quite a lovely holiday. In some sense, it's a New Year celebration. But the theme of light is a wonderful one. Mm-hmm. As you may recall, you'll see houses lit up with dias, small little lights. Yeah. But it is everything that light represents. Light over darkness, good over evil. And so there's just a wonderful set of themes that run through it. Yeah. It's sort of interesting to think about across religions, light plays a big role. Think about the Jewish holidays. Think about Christmas, light and religion and festivities. It just goes together really nicely. And it's magic. Yeah. It's absolutely magical. <laughs> it is magic, yeah. Sit at a fire and stare into the flames for a little while. It's just like endlessly interesting. Exactly right. Yeah. So what do we have? Before we get all too romantic, you think? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I wanted to talk about AI and copyright as one of the topics today. And Ooh. all of a sudden, it's everywhere. There's a lot of legal action and I think there's a whole set of really interesting questions around it. Yeah. And there's that copycat after hours podcast too. We have to worry about that's AI (laughs) generated. (laughs) Yes, exactly. What did you bring? Well, it's a couple of years into this corporate purpose movement, Mm. which has really been transformational in many ways. And I thought we could just take the temperature of where that movement is and what we make of its accomplishments and where we think it's lacking as a way to think about going forward, how it should evolve. Let's do it. All right, Felix, so AI and copyright, tell us what's been on your mind. I think there are three big things to think about. The first is if you create some work, some image with the help of AI, can you get the protection of copyright? So that's one question. Right. Suppose I create one of these images and it's very similar to something that someone else has created could I get sued because I infringed on someone else's copyright? And then maybe the most complicated of all, because all of these AI models are based on huge amounts of text or images, 
is there something about the collection of these images that enjoy copyright? And as a result, you can't just build an AI model on top of it without asking the owners of the copyrighted images or the copyrighted texts for permission. Right. I think of this as like an output problem and an input problem. So there's the output of AI and what does that mean for copyright? And then there's just the inputs of AI. Yes, that's a great way of thinking about it. I think the easiest is probably, can you get copyright protection for something that you have created with the help of AI? Right. And the answer seems to be, if it's purely the machine that creates the image, you cannot get copyright. Right. Copyright is really just for human creators. I think the classic example is if you have a monkey and you give the monkey a camera and he presses the button, that image, even though it's created by a camera, just as if a human person had pressed the button, that cannot be copyrighted. So that seems relatively clear. There's right. sort of these edge cases. I remember a famous case of a comic book author who wrote a really interesting comic book, and then all the images were generated with the help of AI. And in that case, the Copyright Office decided that it's the combination of the images and the text that deserved copyright protection. But the images themselves, if say if he were to take it out and then just post an image, that image itself, because it's literally just created by AI, cannot actually enjoy copyright protection. And Felix, before you go to the input side, which I agree is more complex, let's just make sure on the output side, there is an issue associated with the use of this technology. And so I think the alternative view is by prompting artificial intelligence in certain ways and through that iterative process of prompting, am I exerting enough human influence to get a copyright? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The courts so far have denied these claims. So the idea is if you prompt, say, ChatGPT and yeah. you go back and forth and it gets better and better at expressing the ideas that you want, you supply an idea but not a work. And ideas cannot be copyrighted, but works can. Right. And so in that traditional distinction, because you're really telling the AI your idea and you're getting better and better at it, then it's this back and forth. But ultimately, you have supplied the idea, the AI created the work, and because AI created the work, it cannot be copyrighted. And then to finish on the output side, one really big question is, if you happen to work with Dolly and create an image. And the image happens to be substantially similar to something that already exists and is copyrighted. Do you infringe on copyright? We have some research that says 2 to 5% of the output of AI systems ends up looking super, super similar. Right. And if it was similar enough to be essentially declared substantially similar by a court, you'd be liable for infringement. Yeah. I think in a way of all these questions, that one feels relatively speaking the easiest in the sense that it is the same question we've been asking about copyright for a while, yes. which is if you produce a piece of art that's substantially similar to Michelangelo's, we've worried about that problem before in a way. The means of production are different, but... That question, not that it's an easy question, but it seems like one that we've struggled a little bit with before, as opposed yeah. to those other AI questions which feel novel and weird. So maybe let's go to the input side. And there, I think it's wide open what it means. So one 
important facet here that will matter quite a bit is as you build one of these large language models or as you build on a database with photos, it's almost always the case that the AI company will actually download the text or will download the image. Right. So that's the sense in which you can ask, well, you downloaded an image and you copied it and you didn't ask the owner of the image whether you were allowed to do this. That's this right. is classic infringement. And not just that, Felix, then you download it and then you train your model on it. That's right. Yeah. And so the excuse, and I think the whole conversation is around, does the excuse apply? The excuse is one that we typically call fair use. Right. And there's a whole host of criteria around fair use. Right. I mean, you characterize it as an excuse. <laughs> and by the way, this is becoming very relevant because the FTC has solicited comments on this. Technology firms like Andreessen Horowitz have suggested that if you make AI firms pay for all that content, it could cripple the AI industry. Yeah, And I don't know, Felix, you put that in such a dismissive way, but fair use is an important doctrine here, which is we can use copyrighted images in limited ways if it is under certain parameters, particularly the way we use it, the way we cite it, the way we characterize it, how much we transform it. There is this kind of safe harbor, I guess is the way to think of it, of fair use. And I take it you're skeptical about that. Maybe I can point out two conditions that apply to fair use that I think are particularly relevant here. There's a whole list of criteria, but two that strike me as really important are, one is what's the effect on the value of the original work? Right. So is it the case that now that there's something that AI can do, does it have a dramatic impact on the value? And I think the most recent example is when someone used AI to produce a new song by Drake and The Weeknd, but it was recognizable as one of their songs. And it yep. was hugely popular, but that feels like a very close substitute to a Drake or a Weeknd song. And as a result, probably fair use doesn't really apply here. The counter example is when Google downloaded basically all the books that ever existed right. <laughs> to improve the search engine, but also to just create a database of books. And mm -hmm. you can look at snippets of these books and maybe right. parts. It's a very of the powerful text. search engine. It's very powerful. Yeah. There, I think the courts decided in Google's favor. And one of the arguments was look, these snippets and the discoverability of books is not actually a substitute of the books. And in some sense, you might argue it makes the book more valuable because now you can discover it in ways that you couldn't have discovered it before. Exactly. But so that's an important thing for us to think about what happens to the market value of these works as AI creates related images, related texts. Right. And by the way, just to be clear, that question is fairly speculative. Yeah. It's not like how <laughs> yes. common are these things? Your 5% rule, for example, with images or something like that. This is a what is happening to the value of property because someone is doing something? So one could, for example, argue that Drake's reputation is enhanced mm -hmm. by the yeah. production of this additional song. Yes. So it's actually a very speculative question, but a super interesting one, but yeah. clearly a speculative one. The other one that is really interesting is fair use 
applies if the work is really transformative. Yeah. Remember, copyright was created to give greater incentives to creators to do new things. And we didn't want to discourage the creation of really new things, but the emphasis here is on really, which I guess is called transformative right. in legal speak. For instance, it's a big issue with Andy Warhol paintings now, yes. where it's not clear, are they distant enough? Are they transformative enough in order to not have infringed on the copyright of the person who created the original work? These issues within fair use strike me as clear examples of how and why AI might get tripped up. So, for example, if they don't transform enough some piece of content, or mm -hmm. if, for example, they devalue some other work. Yeah. But let me ask you the even more simple question. What do you make of just the fact that AI is being trained on lots and lots of material that is somehow an input to their process? And even before we get to these issues where it seems a little more, not easy, Felix, but for example, if they come out with a book and it's not called Better, Simpler Strategy, it's called <laughs> Way Better, Clearer Strategy, <laughs> that might devalue your work and it might not be sufficiently transformational of your work yeah. because it's been trained to basically just talk like Felix. Yeah. But in the background, put those cases aside. We know that they've read your book. That seems like a threshold question, even before you get to your questions. Do you know where I'm going, Felix? Yeah. You're thinking about the black box process that ultimately exactly. can lead to something novel. My intuition here is, say, you go to an art gallery or you go to a museum and you're an artist and you're incredibly inspired by what you see. If the resulting work is sufficiently different, is transformative. I see. I think you should be okay because what we wanted really with copyright is we wanted to give you fabulous incentives and wanted to protect the creators, but at the same time, not shutting down innovation for everyone else at one and the same time. And so it's always this balancing act between giving protection to works that exist, but at the same time, enabling future creations. And fair use, I think, was a pretty smart way of doing this in that we recognized if there's enough distance between what you did and what the original work was, you're home free. You're okay. If you're very close, then I think all these other criteria kick in. Right. Do you see it as different from being a stroll through the museum? I do, I guess, because of the scale and the speed with which it happens and the nature of what can be produced. I take your point, which is there's a distinction between some general sense in which I might be influenced or mm -hmm. an AI model might be influenced by your work, for example, in strategy. Mm -hmm. And we don't really want to penalize them for some general sense of influence that you have had on the world. Yep. And they are just absorbing that and they're drinking it up. Yep. And so then where we're left is, I think, where you're taking us, which is we have to judge the outcomes and the output. And then we judge the output and we see how far it is. Yes. I guess the problem with that is it's not rewarding creators for that general way in which they might influence the world. <laughs> yes. And you might say, yeah, well, we never really wanted to. But it does feel a little wrong if a company is monetizing that in a way that was not really true for the 
your lovely story of an artist who just happens to be strolling through a gallery. <laughs> the scale and scope yeah. of that monetization is different. Right. As I'm speaking, I'm not sure this argument has merit, honestly, Felix, but yeah. I think it is worth pausing on because I think where you're going is we're just left with the traditional way, which is we have to measure intellectual distance ex post, mm -hmm. right? That's where mm -hmm. you're heading, I think, yes. Felix. And I think it's interesting how, for instance, when you use Dolly 3, yeah. And you ask it to create an image in the style of some artist. Right. It will now decline to do so. And the reason is the output is going to be so close to what Picasso would have done. Future AI products will be careful to maintain that distance to the original works. And one of the reasons why I actually really love this is that it makes it so much more likely that AI will be used by humans in really creative ways. The strategic decisions of AI companies can push in that direction that we really get to see new things that no human would ever have thought of. Then, oh my God, AI has just gotten so much more interesting, so much more creative. Yeah. And that story of the world is one where it has absorbed lots of knowledge and lots of images from history and somehow is just able to recombine it in more wondrous ways and faster than anyone could imagine. And that is truly wonderful. And then the guardrails are effectively the ones you've articulated, which is ex post intellectual distance, as well as ex ante, we just won't let you <laughs> prompt us for things that are too close. Mm -hmm. All right, well then, Felix, I guess you'll be delighted to hear that I've used AI to generate a new strategy book. Oh my God, it's so interesting because I just wrote a finance book. I mean... <laughs> co-wrote sort of it's not yellow like the famous <laughs> yeah. how finance works but you know other than that all right well good so we'll see each other in court then <laughs> excellent very good you're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down if anything you could probably use a few more hours in the day that's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in slack Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So Mihir, social purpose, what's on your mind? It's been a couple of years since the corporate purpose movement has really taken hold. Now, in some sense, it's been a long time coming. Mm -hmm. The initial ideas that ran up against so-called shareholder primacy and articulated the idea that stakeholders more broadly are important to corporations has been around for quite a while. Mm -hmm. But in the last five, seven years, it has really accelerated to the degree that and we talked about this a while ago, the Business Roundtable has embraced it. And now, indeed, it is kind of the bread and butter within corporations to have an explicit corporate purpose. Yep. And I'm curious what you make of that movement now that it is so well established. To give you a sense of what this is, most corporations today have some notion of a purpose statement. So, for example, BlackRock says to help more and more people experience financial well-being. Campbell's Soup, real food that matters for life's moments. AT&T, inspire human progress through the power of communication and entertainment. So these statements are out there. 
And they are really front and center in many ways in the life of a corporation. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm curious as to what you think this movement has accomplished so far and what it will accomplish in the future. One really significant accomplishment is that we sort of opened up this conversation around what is the purpose of businesses. I think shareholder capitalism, the arguments are at least to me, so convincing, so powerful that for a very long time, we didn't really have the conversation. It was really before shareholder capitalism got established that there was a broader notion of the purpose of companies. And then I think for at least a couple of decades, that conversation ended and we all seem to believe that be as profitable as you possibly can basically sums it all up. So I think that to me is already huge. It's a very interesting and important conversation to have. And in the course of that conversation, I think it's roughly two thirds of companies that have now some sort of a purpose statement. If you then scratch the surface a little bit and you ask for how many of these companies is it actually true that there's real impact, that there's rules or that there's prescriptions, that there's do's and don'ts as a result of having that purpose, right. you get to a much smaller number. It's probably around 25% of all companies or so. That's the first thing I would say. Work in progress, I think, is maybe one way to describe it. Because if it's just a nice couple of words on someone's web page, it will not really bring any of the benefits. So one question to ask is like, why is it so difficult to translate these purpose statements into things that have impact? Right. And then I think the second big issue is there's sort of purpose at the level of the mission of the entire organization. And then there's purpose as experienced in the everyday of employees in the organization. We now know from research that these two things are actually very different from one another. For instance, at the level of the overall purpose, the mission of the organization, that appeal is very gendered. It's very important to women. It doesn't matter so much to men. While purpose or meaning in your everyday activities is not gendered at all, that's equally important to men or women. Mm -hmm. There's a really nice paper out of Columbia Business School. It's one of the reasons why fewer women go into finance, because the overall sense of purpose or mission is not really something that the industry is famous for. And as a result, the finance industry struggles to attract really smart women. Right. Those are two, I think, really important questions. I think the first is, in some sense, why are so many of the statements so anodyne and ineffective in some sense? <laughs> yeah. They're really, in some sense, unconstructive. I think my take on that first question is, in some sense, purpose has become about pleasing people. And so it is less about saying what you will and won't do, as opposed to it just is about saying yes. Mm -hmm. Good thinking is about trade-offs. And it feels like when purpose fails, it ignores trade-offs. It just says yes to the world. And we know saying yes to the world is not strategic thinking. In some sense, it's the antithesis <laughs> of yeah. good thinking. Yeah, yeah. It is wonderful for the reasons you said, which is it's forced us to rethink what corporations do. It's forced us to think about the role of corporations in our lives. It's forced us to rethink what work is for human beings, which has to be purpose-driven. Mm -hmm. I do wonder if it's come at a cost of a little bit of a looser appreciation for business fundamentals, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is concerning <laughs> because those business fundamentals are really important, at least to my eye, are really important. Yeah, and 
On top of that, I think there's a second concern around what will happen longer term with the purpose movement. So maybe I'll give you an example. So take a company that says, we help small businesses be more successful. Right. And say it's built for a bank that has amazing risk management tools that are really geared towards understanding how risky is a small business. Right. And they're better just at making credit decisions. That's the source of their competitive advantage. I do think the framing matters. If you say, we want to be the most profitable bank in this particular sector, or if you say, we want to be amazingly good at helping small businesses get access to loans and as a result, make them more successful. The second description is just more engaging. Right. I can see how you might be attracted to that particular kind of business. And so there's two things here to think about. The part that I love about this is, I think strategy for a long time has taken people for granted. Yeah, We were very good thinking about customers and thinking about the trade-offs that come from serving particular customer groups. We were not nearly as sophisticated in thinking about how do we create value for people in the organizations. And so yeah. in that sense, this might be very welcome. My fear is, of course, that if it turns out that many of these purpose statements are just a reframing of what the company would have done in the first place because we now discover that it creates a little more enthusiasm. Sure. If in the end, maybe it's true that some of these companies are good at making loan decisions and maybe other companies just go small businesses into taking on more debt than they should in the first place, we will very quickly and over time get something that is going to look like greenwashing. Yeah. We're now... Every environmental statement that you see, exactly. you think, oh my God, is it true? Is it not true? Should I be skeptical? Am I falling for a cheap marketing ploy because it's attached to some claim? Yeah. And I think it's done tremendous damage to companies that are trying to do the right thing with respect to the environment. And I fear yeah. the same might happen if we're not careful and strict in the arena of purpose as well. Yeah, I think that's right on both dimensions, Felix. So the first is, I think the primary domain where this has really been influential and powerful is inside organizations and with respect to employees. In some sense, I've been looking for the effects in how you allocate capital or how you think about which markets to serve or how you think about mm -hmm. those kinds of decisions. I don't think it's been that necessarily influential. I think what has really mattered is in the contract between employees and employers and the understanding of what it is that we are providing each other. And that is not to be dismissed. Mm -hmm. That's like really important to your point. And so I think that is exactly right. That's where this has really proven powerful. And I guess there's two questions to my mind, which is why has it exerted its maximum influence there? Why are people looking for meaning and why are companies now providing that meaning? And then to your second point, is there some way that this unravels where people end up finding that these companies may not be able to provide the meaning that they have portrayed themselves as providing to employees? Mm -hmm. I don't want to be negative about it. I, and I think you, take 
tremendous value from being attached to an institution that we really believe in and being involved in something that really matters. And that mission really matters to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it feels like it's a little hard to imagine and hope that every organization in the world can generate that same level of meaning. I don't know if that sounds horribly snobby, but does that feel right? <laughs> I'm not super sure. So to your first question, why is it more powerful for employees than for consumers? I think part of it might be that many consumer decisions are so fleeting. Yeah. So I go buy my coffee. I know it's better not to use a straw. If the straw is a plastic straw, mm -hmm. it's the right thing to do. But it's also not something that I will think about for the rest of the day. Work is just really central to people's lives. And so having a sense that yeah. you're doing something meaningful Absolutely. really matters. And to your second question, maybe it's the very fact that Many moments at work are just not all that inspiring. So if you do your timesheet or you fill out your travel expense report, exactly, jobs and parts of jobs can just be incredibly dull. Knowing that even though what I'm doing right now is not all that interesting, but it's attached to something that is more meaningful and more interesting, maybe that's exactly why it can be extra powerful. I imagine if you work in a hospital and you save someone's life, no one has to tell you right. about purpose and why you're doing what you're doing. But when I do my travel expense report, it's a little less obvious. Maybe those are the moments when it's particularly helpful and when companies fail to link it to these more mundane parts of our work lives. You miss out on almost everything that is actually helpful and useful. Yeah, I think all that makes a ton of sense, Felix. I think what I'm stumbling with is, and this is going to sound a little harsh, if at the end of the day, this is fundamentally an HR strategy, mm -hmm. then that is not really how it's being sold to the world. It's being sold as a transformational rewriting of capitalism. By the way, HR strategies are like really, really important. Creating more engagement at work and like getting people to feel the way they work and how they work has more meaning is hugely valuable. I'm not trying to diminish it, but it's not really a rewriting of the rules of capitalism. So that seems like the gap. Yeah. That feels yeah. a little bit like a big gap. Now, maybe that's okay. Maybe things get sold in ways that don't end up working out and that's just <laughs> life. <laughs> Can I half disagree with you? Yeah. So imagine you're doing all the work, you have amazing purpose, and then you link it to individual activities and it makes jobs better. Right. That is value creation that will eventually show up on P&Ls in ways that you can understand. Because we know for every job that we look at, there is an incredible dispersion in the wages that you earn, much bigger actually than most people realize. And some of that has to do with is it inspiring? Is it a great place to be? And so on. Mm -hmm. So there are these traditional linkages back to what we've always understood the purpose of companies are. If they create a ton of value, in all likelihood, they will capture some of it. And the part that they capture, we will see on PL. So that's sort of the narrow answer. Yeah. Where I agree with you is where is that line where you do things because it's consistent with your purpose that will actually undermine your profitability. So I have always found companies that have these purpose statements, and then as a result, there's a set of things that they don't do 
exactly. even though they know it would be profitable. Or say in my little example, mm -hmm. we cater to small businesses and small businesses is actually not the most profitable segment of the market. But I really believe that that's a good thing to do. And as a result, I create the most value I can. And I think corporate leaders have been missing out, I think, largely by not making clear when is purpose a useful thing to do, but we only do it to the extent that it furthers profitability. And remember, that's still a good thing to do because you're creating better jobs, you're creating more engagement, people will feel better going to work. Right. That is value creation that we shouldn't discount because it's not value creation for customers. That's the same kind of value creation that we always loved about business. But Corporate leaders have not been good telling us, are we doing even more than that? Yeah. Are we saying no to profitable business opportunities? Are we staying away from the kinds of things that would increase our paychecks, but it's inconsistent with purpose? And this is where things, I think, get really interesting. Because I take your point about the narrow version, which is it can lead to greater profitability because employees are more engaged. But the other way to frame this, which is more transformational, which I think is super interesting, is... If employee meaning is so valuable, then we have to listen to their preferences on the most important decisions we make. Mm -hmm. If you want me to believe that there's this much meaning in my work, then you have to start doing things that I believe in. So it becomes a two-way street. Now, that is radical to me. Yeah. That's really transformational. If we see that version of things, that's, I think, the next leg of this, which is if we see leaders understanding this as a shift in who has decision rights, then it gets really transformational. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting to me, your point about we have to link decisions in the organization to the things that people want. And yeah. I think of two ways of doing that. One is to really actively listen and then change. Or I think which happens to a great extent with customers. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if that's also the dominant response on the employee side. You rely on selection effects. Right. You make it clear right. Right. Uh, what your product is, what your service is, and then the right customers come. Or you make it clear how you run the company, right. what you do, what you don't do. And then there are selection effects. In this respect also, employees are very much in the dark when they choose their jobs with respect to many of the little things that would matter when you think about purpose. Yeah, that's super interesting because I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. It can lead to a lot of sorting, which can be maybe really great. That could be amazing. It does run up against one thing that we used to think about workplaces, which is that they were generally a place where you could interact with lots of different types of people, mm -hmm. like a neighborhood. And maybe that ceases to be true. Maybe it doesn't need to be true because sorting in workplaces could be a great thing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, Felix, this conversation has really made me think a lot harder about purpose because I think I've been looking in the wrong place in a way. Mm -hmm. Like I've been looking in decisions that maybe the corporate purpose movement is not designed to deliver on, but it's really delivering in many ways on these margins. And maybe that is much more powerful than I've really thought about. Recommendations. Felix, what do you have? I saw a show last week by a comedian. Her name is Atsuko Okatsuka. Very nice. She's out of LA and she is amazing. Huh. I can't really remember 
laughing so hard for so long. It was just an incredible show. And many of our listeners will probably know her. She has an HBO special called The Intruder, where mm-hmm. you sort of get to see her personality and get to see her comedy. And she's on tour now up until early 2024. So you might be able to catch her in one of the cities. But to me, she's really special for two reasons. One is she starts with these topics that sound quite serious. For instance, in this latest show, there's this issue around how do you actually make friends as an adult? So easy as a kid. And then as adults, we know it's... Mm -hmm. And so you think, okay, so this is like a really serious topic. And then these little twists and turns when she thinks about when does it work well, when is it harder, Mm -hmm. what is it about the workplace that it somehow seems easier to make friends when we're at work as opposed to others, and so on and so on. So that alone is like really fantastic. And I don't really remember having seen this the way other comedians build their shows. She has these little snippets that reoccur. So, for instance, in this particular show, she talks about tandems and how she likes to write a tandem with her husband. <laughs> yep. And the tandem becomes this little symbol. It's almost like a secret oh, that she shares nice. with her audience. And then at various points in the show, the tandem or a single bike shows up again. And because you experience the earlier part of the show, it's this secret language that you have with her that then makes you laugh and think about things. Other than having the most complicated name on the planet, she's just really fabulous if you have a chance to see her. And I love the idea of these themes that get woven through sometimes these comedic routines because it makes you realize that it's really very subtle, the storytelling they're doing. It's easy to kind of look at it as a set of jokes or a set, but often it's really very delicate what they're up to. Yeah. What do you have for us, Mihir? So given that it's Diwali, my recommendation is a little bit related. I just think these occasions are wonderful occasions to taste other cultures and embrace other cultures. Mm. So I just want to encourage everybody, especially at this time of year, since we have so many of them, to use these occasions to embrace and explore a different culture. And in particular, one can do that obviously by reaching out to people from those traditions, but also by visiting parts of your city that might be dominated by different people and different cultures, going there for a meal, These holidays are spectacular, and they're wonderful invitations to engage with other cultures. So rather than think of them as times to let other people celebrate, perhaps try to understand them as opportunities for you to celebrate yourself. I think people who come from different traditions love nothing more than to share it. Yeah, And so it is a good opportunity to engage with different cultures than your own. I love that. And we're out of time already. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. 